All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. Pretty new listeners to the Money Wise program. Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 34th year of business and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. We have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments, and don't forget to like the show. As we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 1,481 points, or 4.4%. The S&P 500 last week was down about 184 points, or 4.5%. And the NASDAQ last week was down about 550 points, or 4.7%. Now, for the year to date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 3.7%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is up 0.6%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is up 6.4%. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Whoa, do we have a lot to unpack on this weekend's Money Wise program. I know last weekend was very much a political round corner, uh, or political round table, I should say, with Dad. Uh, but this past week, uh, we have quite a bit of information to, to, to go into. And, you know, the, the week really kicked off on Tuesday with the annual Humphrey Hawkins testimony from the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jay Powell. And... I will say this, long story short, he was more hawkish, fighting inflation. They're going to go to the ends of the earth to do it. Doesn't really matter how high they've got to raise interest rates or how far, they're going to continue to do it until inflation is crushed and it's back down to that 2% level, their magic number, which none of us have still yet to figure out how they got to that 2% number since long-term uh, core PCE is running 3.2%. Uh, but the markets reacted, obviously, uh, unfavorable to this more hawkish commentary from the Fed. But at the end of the day, it really is comes down to data dependency, which we have talked about on this program for I don't know how many months about data dependency of the Fed. So that was the beginning of the week on Tuesday and Wednesday. So for the last, I don't know, month or so, uh, I think I've mentioned this fantasy that the market seemed to be believing that uh, they assumed that interest rates uh, were going to be cut by the end of the year. And uh, 
I don't know where this fantasy came from, and the and we had that we've had that tremendous rally uh, in stock. You know, Dow, the S and P, the Nasdaq, uh, even even more tremendous rally. We were talking about these compounded rates of returns at the at the rate that the market was going up six weeks ago. The market would be up you know seventy some odd percent this year at the at the the pace at which stock prices had been going up the first six weeks continued for the rest of the year. We just, we said it was a fantasy. There's just no way this is going to continue. And the fantasy ended this week. Uh, and, and it was because the, the data just hasn't come in, uh, to the extent that the market expected and the Fed expected. And so should we be surprised that the Federal Reserve chairman had, you know, went to Washington? And said, we are going to tame this animal, no matter how, what, whatever it takes, we're going to do it. And we are dead set on this 2% uh, goal, which seems so far out into the future, uh, to reach, to reach that 2%. And, and when they, if they ever do reach the 2% goal, they're going to keep interest rates there higher for longer. That's what's been said. Now, as we all know, as we all know, the, the uh, statements from the Federal Reserve don't always come to pass as the future unfolds. They're always subject to change. Now, Never. now Never. we have some change, and the change uh, came in the form. Did you want to say something before I got to that, Joe? I just wanted to say something. If the okay. Fed that two-day period and, and all the posturing and grandstanding that our elected officials had asking the stupidest questions I've ever heard. Maybe he could have spent that time working on interest rates and inflation. And we have a, and we have this problem solved. I'm pulling out my inner John Davidson, but the reality of it is there's so many, so much stupidity I could take and let's get to work and quit answering these inane questions about everything under the sun and come up with a solution. Maybe they should come up with solutions. Anybody with a banking experience or investment experience, Anyways, I just had to get off. You mean you mean our politicians chest. actually having some type of real world experience, Joe? You you've got to wake up from that fantasy. <laughs> just but, well, me, anyways, but, but 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 the you know as far as you know, Jeff talking about the fact that the market at the beginning of the year, especially in January, had this fantasy that they were going to be cutting rates by the end of the year, and we were all on record saying we did not believe that at all. I mean, there are certain things we don't necessarily agree on at Davidson Capital Management, but we were all three in agreement that we did not foresee the Fed cutting any interest rates this year. And we also were in the camp that we did not believe this rally and have said so on this show multiple times. I've said so in client meetings. We just didn't buy into it. We didn't have this FOMO fear of missing out and pushing all of our chips in as we had that first month rally in January. And then what happened on Tuesday and Wednesday and the market reacting negatively to that, although I, I got to say, Jay Powell didn't really say anything new, did he, guys? I didn't really hear anything different. It's well, I think no. He said higher, he said higher for longer, uh, and I don't know that he's really been saying saying those specific words. But the higher for longer really got the markets riled up. That those the, the fantasy seekers uh, had their fantasies dashed, and they came in and sold. And we were down what five hundred some odd points. One day, and I don't know how many hundreds of points. Yeah. How much? How many hundreds of points the the next day, and then I know we only have a minute left in this segment, so I guess I'll have to give a little preview of the next se- segment. And then 
the unintended consequences or the unforeseen consequences of the biggest interest rate increasing cycle we've seen since the early 1980s reared its ugly head with the biggest bank failure since the financial crisis that occurred on Friday. And I see we're running out of time, so I'm going to leave it there, and when we come back, we'll talk about that. Okay, and we'll do that Do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's MoneyWise program, recapping the happenings of Wall Street from last week, the last segment we were talking about uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, the annual Humphrey Hawkins testimony from Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and, and again, the market reacting to a little bit more hawkishness. I mean, I felt he didn't really say too much, too many new things, although, Jeff, you did mention in the last segment he said higher for longer as far as interest rates. But again, everything is data dependent. And oh, did the data change starting Thursday, this past Thursday, did the data change? And it's involving a bank out of California called Silicon Valley Bank, symbol SIVB. So as you mentioned before we went to break, Jeff, that SIVB is was taken over by regulators on Friday. And it's the largest bank failure we have had since 2008. So it started with a press release on Thursday saying the bank was going to raise cash via a stock offering, uh, which any you know, additional stock offerings after initial public public offering has the effect of diluting existing shareholders. It's not necessarily a, a positive thing when a company issues more shares of stock. It doesn't normally result as the beginning of the end for a company, but when when that when the company came out and announced that, they they also made an announcement about losses in their portfolio, specifically losses in treasury instruments that they owned on their books. And these losses, I think, were like $1.8 billion, something along those lines. Am I remembering was, that right? It, correct. It was $1.8 billion. It was for the treasuries that they bought in late 2021, but they had maturity dates well north of seven years, which right. as we're reading and finding out about this, I'm just putting my hands on my head. What were they thinking late 2021, putting, putting their their – their assets in treasuries that far yeah. out. So this this bank had a reputation that had been cultivated over about four decades in Silicon Valley as a as a leading uh, institution for financing uh, startups. 
and catering to VC organizations, venture capital organizations, and also doing business with the employees and leaders of various firms. All they, they were very technology, Silicon Valley focused. And this business strategy served them well in an area when the when technology was booming. Um, but when technology started to not boom so much, and you coupled this with the biggest series of interest rate increases since, as I said, the beginning of the, you know, the early 1980s, uh, and apparently we're going to, we're going to be finding out over the weeks and months and maybe, you know, a year from now what truly happened in their portfolio. But clearly there seemed to be some sort of breakdown in risk management. And a call went out from some of these leading venture capital firms to their uh, the, the companies that they were financing, these, these startups, these, these companies that have not gone public, that had substantial amounts of money on deposit with this bank. It's deposits of the amount that were far above the FDIC limits, which is $250,000. So these calls went out. The venture capital firms, which are basically financing these startups, it's basically dad calling saying, hey, son, go get your money out of this bank and do it right now. Mm-hmm. And then that, uh, that order started to spread, and you had this classic run on the bank. And once the run on the bank gathered steam, it gathered steam in a hurry, and within 24 hours, the bank is toast. It's done. And the, the California comes in, shuts them down. The FDIC comes in, shuts them down. The shareholders that own the stock, it, it's now worthless. All in the space. I mean, it, this all happened, you know, in, in, in a handful of days. It's over. And this isn't, this isn't small savings alone in backwoods, Arkansas. This is a, Leader, two eleven billion dollars of assets as of the end of twenty twenty. As Jeff pointed earlier, forty year old financial institution, forty years old. Very, very, exactly, very reputable firm. Two hundred eleven billion dollars they had as of the end of twenty twenty two, and what was so interesting is as of Thursday. Late Thursday, an article came out in the Wall Street Journal because the stock was absolutely pummeled on Thursday because of this new issue of stock. So shareholders did not take that favorable with the dilution of the shareholders that were already owning the stock. So they voted with their shares, sold it down north of 60% on Thursday. Then this article comes out late after the close on the, in the journal about the 1.8 billion they lost on having to sell these treasury assets, which by the way, these treasury assets they sold was listed on their balance sheet and their fourth quarter earnings report marked to sell. Now here's the other kind of coup de grace that happened to this company is they had other substantial amount of assets and treasuries, but they had them marked to hold, which means they did not have to report them on their balance sheet, but rumor was swirling around that they were looking down the barrel of 17 to $18 billion of unrealized losses in that treasury trade. 
And then that's, again, that started the snowball rolling. As Jeff said, we get a run on the bank. Deposits come out. Their assets get cut. This loss that at $211 billion, a $17, $18 million billion loss is about an 8% loss. An 8% loss put a bank out of business. Well, let me clarify something you just said. After the run of these assets. Yeah, just let me clarify something. The bank does have to report the assets if they're marked to hold to maturity. What they don't have to report is they don't have to report any losses that they have on them. They have to report them. They don't have to report the losses. Uh, So that's on assets that they have designated uh, hold to maturity. That's Mm -hmm. that's one of the 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 quirky little things about bank accounting because we used to manage money uh, for a bank bonds in a bank in the early 1990s. And that those rules existed back then, you know, these rules have been in existence. I don't know how long, but it's kind of quirky that all these banks that they designate this security, I'm going to hold to maturity. I don't have to report any losses on now. You and I and Joe all know, that anybody that bought any bonds, you know, here in the last, you know, late 20, you know, 2020, 2021, uh, 2022 that had maturities out greater than three, four, you know, greater than whatever you want to, you know, one year, two year, five year, they're going to have losses. Mm-hmm. There's going to be unreal because interest rates go up, the price of the bonds go down because they're constantly resetting to the current level of interest rates. So the thing that really surprises me, and I only got a couple of minutes here, is all this talk since the financial crisis about how the regulators have been, you know, there's just, we're never going to have a 2008, 2009 type situation again. We've, we fixed the rules. We've come in there. We got all these capital levels. We got to have the, yeah, tier one, tier two, tier 10, tier this, tier that, everywhere a tier, you know, and these, everyone, Everyone had this idea, okay, well, the banks, they're great. They're totally fine. There's not going to be any problems. The regulators are on top of it. Well, what happened here? How well, is it not- that this, how is, hold on, how is it that this, this bank got so concentrated in a particular group of businesses to such an extent that these interest rate increases that we've added, yes, they're you know, it's been 40-plus years since we've had this many interest rate increases. But how did they? the regulators not notice that, hey, you guys are a little too concentrated in, a, you know, particular assets, you know, with particular organizations. You're, you're a little overexposed to these, uh, these brand-new companies, these young companies, these venture capital-type companies. Maybe you shouldn't be as exposed. Why, you know? When we, where was the regulation here? We're going to find out in the weeks and months to come what, what went on here. But it kind of makes me wonder, should we be concerned about anything else? And that's the contagion part. And that's, and I see we're getting ready to run out of time. I'll have to take this over to the next segment. That's the contagion part. That's what switched the narrative from worrying about uh, unemployment rates and inflation rates, and now people are wondering: Is there is there an issue in the banking system? And I'll leave it there. Okay, so we'll pick up this topic on the other side of the break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the break. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in from the bottom of the hour break, continuing our conversation about Silicon Valley Bank, the largest bank failure since 2008. Um, want to go into a little bit more in depth, but Joe, I know there was something that you wanted to to talk about from the last segment. So well, I'll it was it just just real briefly, and y'all know what SVB's credit rating was from a bond. It was triple B, right? I think it was A minus a couple years ago. What I'm getting at is a contingent. You don't know how far this is going to go from a corporate bond standpoint or a high yield bond standpoint. I mean, triple B is investment grade. But what I'm getting at is you got to pay attention to that space too. I mean, that's why we're in U.S. Treasuries right now, you know. Well, I, I saw their bonds were trading for 30 cents on the dollar, mm-hmm. so I, I highly doubt that they're, you know, they're they're obviously going to be in default now since the, the bank no longer exists. But, yeah, I mean, it's a, the, the credit rating agencies were rating them as investment grade, and in 48 hours they're out of business. Well, and, and there was something I wanted to, to, to talk about from the last segment, you know, talking about the capital requirements, kind of the rules that came out of the financial crisis. And a lot of these rules, I mean, obviously the rules apply to all banks, but the level of capitalization they have to have on their books is different for the type of bank and the size of the bank that it is. Now, obviously the huge money center banks, the Bank of Americas, the Wells Fargo, basically the banks that have the huge systemic risk that was really concentrated and focused during the financial crisis, obviously from a capitalization standpoint and what we've heard from reports, they're highly capitalized. But Silicon Valley Bank was considered more of a super regional. And I know the rules, they still have capitalization requirements, but they're maybe not as high as, say, a Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, this was a topic that was discussed during the Humphrey Hawkins testimony on Tuesday and Wednesday, where some of the Congress people were really pounding on Jay Powell about, I guess, a new rule or a new proposed law that's being floated that the regional banks and the community banks have to up their capital reserve amounts and how the senators and these Congress people were all up in arms saying that this could wind up putting a lot of community banks and smaller banks out of business because they just don't have the deposits and the assets to meet these capital requirements. And I remember Jay Powell saying on Wednesday, don't worry about it. Things will be adjusted for these smaller regional and community banks. And Silicon Valley Bank was considered a super regional bank. And so the big $64,000 question that came out on Friday, and obviously the markets had responded to this, is how far does the rabbit hole go? Because it was this contagion of sentiment that if Silicon Valley Bank is going to fail, then what is the next possible super regional bank that that could possibly fail? Whether or not they're going to remains to be seen. And well, we so saw. That, well, we've seen fear. Yeah, we've seen a lot of prices 
of California focused banks come down substantially in the last week. Uh, I think one of Western Reserve was like down forty well, percent. Western, Western Alliance Bank. Alliance, Corp. sorry, Western Alliance ba- Bank Corp. Here's we the question: You know how much? How much of uh, you know? The, the, we talk about these unintended consequences. So, let's say your bank stock goes down forty or fifty percent in one week. Do you violate any bond if you have, say, you sold bonds into the public also to raise capital for your bank? Do you violate any covenants of those bond instruments if your stock price or your your overall market capitalization drops below a certain amount? That's a good question because these, these some of these bank stocks you know went down substantially. Are some of these banks going to be forced to raise capital if another bank comes out and says, "Well, we're going to we need to we need to raise capital through another stock offering." Well, we saw what happened when they when SIBB uh, Silicon Valley Bank announced that uh, they were out of business in two days. So it, it kind of, you know, it, it's these unintended consequences. I keep coming back to that phrase of this many interest rate increases. Is it in any way potentially going to determine whether the Federal Reserve? does a 25 or 50 basis point increase at the next meeting because had SIVB going out of business not happened this week based on the unemployment number, which was totally ignored in terms of its strength uh, on, on Friday, had SIVB not happened, would the federal, we'd, we'd be looking at 50 basis points to be almost a gut cinch because we started the week, it was a, like a 25% chance that we were going to have 50 basis points at the next meeting. And then by the time, and then it went up over 80% at one time. And now we're back to about where it started at the end, at the beginning of the week because of what happened with this bank. You know, there's, there's some prognosticators saying we can't raise interest rates anymore. It's going to be, you know, they're just, uh, I saw that that guy from Houston that they had on on Friday. I can't remember his name, who who manages quite a bit of bond money. He was about ready to jump through the screen, saying they just cannot raise interest rates anymore after what's happened with uh with that with the bank on Friday. So I'm not necessarily in that camp because the Federal Reserve has has in the past just continued to raise interest rates after there's been you know an unintended shock to the financial system. Either a bank fails or some other <clears throat> some other event occurs that's tied to a rapid number of uh, interest rate increases. So I'm not necessarily in that camp that they won't they won't go 50 basis points to the next meeting, especially if the CPI number that's coming out next week is stronger than expected. Yeah, Kyle. Well, you know, really, when it comes down to it, Silicon Valley Bank, they were guilty of two big mistakes. One, they were paying way too much interest on deposits back in 2021. They were paying over 2.88% on deposited assets, which caused them to have to then take these assets and go further out into the Treasury yield curve in order to create some net interest margins, not much, but some, and so they were guilty of asking, you know, paying too much interest to their depositors in 2021, forcing them to go further out on the yield curve right at the 
towards the end of 2021 with the Fed raising rates all throughout 2022, creating these losses, and the snowball effect takes takes place. So for these other regional banks, what kind of interest were they offering back in 21 and, and 2020 for depositors' assets? Was it at 2.88%? I have a sneaking suspicion it wasn't, but Jeff, it wasn't. It, it, it wasn't. This is not a shot across the bow of the Fed to give pause in a couple of weeks at their next meeting and next decision. I would say that the 25 basis point increase is firmly on the table, and this might be second to last that they do because of these unintended consequences. And I know, Jeff, you told me a story from back in the early 90s when the Fed moved interest rates from 3% to 6% in a very short period of time, and it caused a bank in Orange County, California, to go belly up. And then after that bank had a run on it, it, it the Fed it wasn't raised, a bank. It wasn't a bank, excuse me. No, what it was it? It was – Orange County, the county. It was it oh, was a county. municipal it was bankruptcy. County. It was a municipal so, bankruptcy. And in so one raised rates two more times at a quarter quarter apiece. Okay, so in February of 1994 to February of 1995, the Federal Reserve embarked on an interest rate increasing uh, program where they went from three and a quarter to six percent on the Fed funds rate. The next to the last. <clears throat> Increase was 75 basis points on November the 15th, 1994. And within just a couple of weeks later, in December of 1994, the county, uh, Orange County, California, filed for Chapter 9 a bankruptcy, which is municipal bankruptcy, because their financial, uh, the treasurer, actually it was the treasurer of Orange County. You remember the name Robert Citron? That's a blast from the past. Y'all probably don't remember. Uh, I do. I remember that name. I just got out of freshman college. So I I remember that name. He was he was the treasurer of Orange County, California, and he was doing all kinds of crazy stuff, leveraged bond investing. And when all these interest rate increases hit, and that last, I guess that last seventy five basis point rate increase in November of nineteen ninety four pushed the county over the edge and they had to go they had to file bankruptcy. After that occurred, <clears throat> the Federal Reserve only raised interest rates one more time the following February, uh, 50 basis points and topped out at 6%. And I don't think they <clears throat> I don't think they cut rates again. They started cutting rates uh, a year and a half later in the summer of 1995. Uh, so the point was, some some say, well, did the Federal Reserve take notice of that <clears throat> municipal failure? Now, granted, what that Treasury was doing uh, was not hard. right. <clears throat> Same as uh, but, Valley. But oh, there yeah. are how many how many other companies out there or hedge funds are doing things that aren't right right now? And are they? Would their failure cause a contagion type situation? And the contagion is like Kyle said, it's not a contagion of work, you know, the banks are going to go like, you know, dominoes or anything like that. It's a contagion of confidence because the banks are built on one thing and that's trust. And I'm running out of time. I will save this for the segment on the, on the other side. All right. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, and kind of want to put a bow on this whole conversation we have about Silicon Valley Bank and its failure. And obviously, you know, had this uh, you know, this, the sentiment contagion for the markets, particularly Thursday and Friday. And with the S and P now back below its 200 day moving average, the next, uh, again, support level and the support level I've been talking about on this program for the S and P 500 is the intraday low on December the 22nd of 2022 of 37.65. So that is the support level. So we break below that. We could be headed lower, uh, but that is the line in the sand as it stands right now with the top line resistance at 4,200. But in this last segment, we did want to talk about, you know, what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. We're not saying that this is the first domino to fall and they're just going to keep falling because Silicon Valley's poor risk management, their poor bond management, the bad decisions to be offering extremely high levels of interest at that point in time on deposited assets was just not wise by management. So this was a management screw up and a screw up of risk management. And so this was the same situation that we ran into during the financial crisis with these money center banks that were getting too over leveraged in collateralized debt and collateralized mortgage obligations. Right. Those were not run. Those were not runs on the bank. Those were just poor risk management. Now, y'all did catch that at the end at the end of the day on Friday that the Treasury Secretary Yellen called was calling a meeting of bankers in Washington. Because she wants to sit down with them and look at, I guess, look at the whites of their eyes and determine, all right, guys, do you all have any of this stuff on your books? Is there anything that we should be concerned about? What's behind the curtain? (laughs) Treasuries? I mean, this would be the first time they're having a meeting over. They they want treasuries. They just want your longer. They they all own treasuries. Yeah. But longer dated. Longer maturity mm-hmm. treasuries. That's such got to be such a weird. I just don't believe that this one bank is the only bank that is exposed. It just it, something like this and this. I don't think I'd call it unprecedented number of interest rate increases, but it's you know, it's been the most in forty years. There's just there's definitely stress. Obviously, the question is: Is there is there still more stress in the system that we don't know about? What other unintended consequences are out there? And uh, that that gives that has obviously given great pause for stock investors, as reflected in the performance of the of the markets this week. From our point of view, we haven't changed our asset allocations. We didn't buy or sell anything this week. We haven't done anything in our fixed income uh, instruments. Uh, you know, its yields are actually down because there's been. So uh, they quote unquote flight to safety. Yes, Kyle. 
Well, I was just going to say, speaking about the bond market and, and the way that yields move down, we're talking almost 40 basis points or four-tenths of 1% on the two-year treasury and 30 basis points on the 10-year treasury. What that was telling me on Friday is that bond investors are sending the message out that the Fed is right at the tail end of raising rates. But because of what tipped the scale with Silicon Valley Bank being shut down, the, that this this is the shot across the bow, the <laughs> unintended consequences that has brought that the, the Fed needs to perk up and pay attention. And so the bond market and the way it traded on Friday told me that they're th- expecting maybe one or two more interest rate increases of 25 basis points apiece and the Fed's done and just keep it higher for longer and let inflation work itself out. Well, interest statistic, the decrease in the yield on the, on the two year was the biggest decrease since 2008. I'm not saying this is financial crisis by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a good tidbit because we're talking about 2008 in the financial crisis. But well, anyway. now, now Jeff's would probably say it was just a flight to safety where mine is it's locking in higher rates before the Fed ends raising interest rates. Yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily in that camp. That's I mean, another segment. The, the, every, every day, every week, the, the markets are sending a different message. And they're sending a different message because the data – the data changes, the data comes in. It's not what people expect, and so the message changes. That's how we go from 25% chance we're going 50 basis points in two weeks to over 80% and then in two days, and now we're back to 25%. So the, the, and possibly the, ending sooner, and possibly ending sooner. I, I don't. The, the Fed's not going to come out and say, okay, we raised the 25 basis points, and we're not raising anymore. They're not going to come out and say that. I know that. I know yeah, they're not, not going to come out and say that. Because here's the thing. We didn't even talk about the employment data because if we did not Because there's nothing to talk about. No one cares. That's why. <laughs> I, know, no, I know that. But if we didn't have the Silicon Valley okay. Bank issue, the markets would have definitely perked up on the fact that the average hourly earnings was less than half of what the expectations were at two-tenths of 1%. And we saw the unemployment rate tick up two-tenths to 3.6%. And the U6, which is the true unemployment rate, went up to 6.8%. So even though the job numbers were hotter, a lot of it was concentrated in the service sector. And they also dialed back by, I think, 30,000 or so job creations from the previous report. So that put us under a half a million jobs created. So yes, more jobs were created, but the average hourly earning, it was something that I feel if we didn't have the Silicon Valley Bank issue, the market would have keyed in on, and we probably would have seen an update without the bank issue if we weren't dealing with the bank issue. Joe? Well, I just wanted to point out one thing I just noticed. Meta is going to lay off about 15% of their employees. So basically this mandate on unemployment. uh, Hold on a second. Was that just announced Friday afternoon after the market closed? Friday afternoon, yeah. I don't know if you'll pay. Wow. Wow. With, with the, the banking system, there, I'm sure there are going to be people that are looking for a job Monday. So maybe Powell indirectly is going to get what he wants. Uh, Higher unemployment. Yeah, yeah, that's what he wants. Higher unemployment. So, or the Fed. And, and, and so, well, again, that's just another data point for the Fed to give them thought for pause. Thought for pause. This not happening. The- they're not going to pause. They're going to get a, we're going to get we're going to get an interest rate increase next week. Uh, yeah, I I I, 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 I I know that's not what you meant. That we're, they're going to be pausing and not doing one next week. 
Let's it's going to be very. Point. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with these with the banks next week. If we start to get some recovery, if these banks that were down 20, 30, 40 percent in a week, are we going to start to see some recovery next week? That's going to be that's going to be very interesting. I want to hear what happens in this meeting that uh, Treasury Yellen has with the bankers and what they have to say about all this. And don't forget, Tuesday is the Consumer Price Index, so it's mm-hmm. going to be another very important piece of data coming out on Tuesday, so stay tuned. But we'll be back in the studio next week to go over all of it. Well, with that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break, so we're going to take the break, go into the news, and when we come back, I'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend MoneyWise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on Money Wise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff, and I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving in to the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com, or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. If you missed the first hour of Money Wise, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise programs. You can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage at davidsoncap.com. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. So being in our second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, a lot of times we like to reserve the second hour for investor education. Um, And I found an interesting article that came from the Market Watch from the Wall Street Journal titled, Five Things... Every retirement portfolio should have, and for any longtime listener of the money, or for any longtime listeners in the Money Wise program, uh, you know that we definitely love our lists, our countdown lists here on the Money Wise program. And so I thought this would be a good article to go into because I I, I know looking through all five of these things that they're saying that what the, the writer of this Market Watch, Watch article is saying that every retirement portfolio should have, I know that we can definitely add our two cents and increase the level of investor education provided in this article. So looking at number one for the five things every retirement portfolio should have and number one being consistent income. And I know that we have talked for years now here on the Money Wise program, the lack of consistent income, or I should say decent income for retirees, particularly those that have higher levels of fixed income uh, inside their portfolio because of the historically low interest rate environment that we have. And what we have discussed on this program many times before is to not necessarily be completely focused on fixed income as providing 
that consistent income. And that there are a lot, there's a multitude of higher dividend paying stocks that can produce consistent annual income, but also give you the upside potential of price appreciation of the individual stock. And kind of some of the go-tos in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and I know, Dad, you've talked many, many times on this program of the dogs of the Dow. And to explain to our listeners the dogs of the Dow again. Uh, the dogs of the Dow are the, uh, at the beginning of each year, they identify the five or ten highest dividend-paying stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and they become either the five dogs of the Dow or the ten dogs of the Dow. And the theory is you own those ten stocks for the year or five stocks if you're going with a small dog, and they will outperform the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and you'll receive consistent income. And then, and there again, if you also get price appreciation over the time that you own that stock, it's just extra icing on the cake. And again, when you look at the dogs of the Dow, when you see the 10-year Treasury yield where it is today, majority, if not all of the, the dogs of the Dow are having an annual div, a higher dividend yield than that of the 10-year Treasury in this current time. I know we haven't seen the list of the dogs of the Dow here recently, but the first stock that always pops up into my head is AT&T. Well, AT&T is still number one. And, uh, and I just actually looked at it a couple days ago, and it's right around a 5.4% dividend well, yield. Well, you can say it's more than 5 I think it had a pretty good day on pretty good day the other day so yeah it is something over five percent but the one thing i would say about this kyle uh, you know the five things that we're looking for here in a retirement account a consistent income now in in days gone by obviously you would get your consistent income from the bond portfolio and that was true from the time uh in the late 70s all the way through the financial crisis back in in 08 but because, as you said, because of the policy that the Federal Reserve has been following, which is basically a zero interest rate policy, uh, this has brought all bond yields down, and therefore people who could have got consistent income from their bond portfolio, they can know, they can get consistent income. I was going to say. The problem yeah. is it's not a level at which they can be retired. That, that they can survive on unless, and as we've talked on this program, if you're one of those lucky few that has a portfolio with asset sizes so large and your income needs so modest and you also don't care about that pesky little thing called monetary inflation taking away your purchasing power, then you know you could look at having a majority of fixed income in your portfolio and be okay in retirement, but there's just so few and far between people and investors that are in that position. So bonds will still, like you said, Dad, provide that consistent income. It's just most likely not going to be at the level that's going to sustain you in retirement. And so that's when you have to look at diversifying your portfolio. And the first place to look to create that income is higher dividend-paying blue-chip stocks like an AT&T. And the first, I would say, really one of the first best places to go would be to track down the dogs of the Dow well, I think for any given year. That's that's the easiest place easiest to begin. Place. And these are all household names. So I think a typical bond investor would feel more comfortable in some of these names than names that they're unfamiliar with. Okay. So, again, five things every portfolio retirement. I want to add a little yeah. bit of something to that okay. because here, especially since the financial crisis, we there, there have been a real focus among some investors on high income and focusing on stocks like master limited partnerships 
or illiquid, privately traded REITs or REITs in general. There's been a real focus of buying some of those types of securities and just for and just ignoring when they go down in value. Many of the the, the, the mesh limited partnerships, some of the REITs, had large declines in values and saw their yields go up and for whatever reason the, the the investor that held those those securities was just focusing solely on the income and not really concentrating on what's happening to the value of the security and having a 12 or 15% yield is all fine and good but there's a reason why they're yielding 12 or 15% maybe you bought it when it was yielding 8 and now it's gone down 20% or 30% in value and so, uh, yeah, it's all fine and good that now it's yielding 15%, but if you've lost 30% in principal value, what have you really made? You've made nothing. You've actually lost money. That's not as common as we're seeing now when, we, when we're reviewing client portfolios, but we know that was an issue very much in the past, and we pointed that out to a lot of investors, and a lot of investors lost sight of the fact that you can't actually have declines in values in some of these higher-yielding names. And one one more thing before we go to break is that Dividends on stocks in the current tax environment are tr- can be treated more. Uh, uh, there's a better treatment of of, of taxation uh, on on those dividend paying stocks than you might otherwise get in uh, in uh, interest on bonds. Okay, well let's take a commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-275. 2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So we're continuing this hour on the five things every retirement portfolio should have. Number one was consistent income. And Jeff, I'm glad you brought up right before we went to commercial break the REITs or real estate investment trusts and these master limited partnerships and some of the portfolios we've reviewed where the prospective client has been glowing about such a high yield and high return that they've been getting in income but not paying attention to the value of the actual original investment and the principal devaluation that they've had and I've said I've actually seen this when I've talked to somebody that said oh Kyle look at the great 10 15 12 percent uh, dividend yield I'm getting, and I'm sa- and I said to them, but you've lost 50 percent or 75 percent of the value of your original investment, and then I see the look come over their face, saying, "Oh my gosh, I just realized that I was like you said earlier, focused on yield and not looking at the total overall picture." So for any listener that's in these types of investments, you know, pay attention to the underlying value of your original investment because it's not it, it's not worth getting a 10% dividend yield if you've lost 50 or 60% of your original investment. Um, and then also for the real estate investment trust, the illiquidity issues that we have been running into right. during portfolio reviews that we've done here at Davidson Capital Management, you have to read the fine print in every perspective, as we've, as we've always said, if it takes 100 or 150 pages to explain the investment vehicle you're getting ready to buy, you should not only get up, but you should get up and run. So, number two. Number two. 
five things that every retirement portfolio should have. The number two item is preservation of capital. Now, there has been really, especially here since 2013 and the big gains that we had in 2013, there's been this obsession in the media with trying to call the top and that, oh, you know, it, it's it, that's all it. these, this all these, it. yeah, this is it. It can't go any higher. We'll go, we'll data mine all these statistics to find statistics that fit our argument that says that you should be getting out of stocks now because they've had this tremendous run since uh, March of 2009 when the financial crisis basically ended and this bull market run began. And there's just been this obsession with, with, with folks needing to, in essence, board up their portfolios, get ready for that coming storm, get ready for that hurricane that's coming. And, you know, preservation of capital is certainly something that every investor should be concerned about. But it doesn't mean that you should go out and you should completely liquidate your portfolio every time or within a month or so of every time the Dow or the S&P or the NASDAQ reaches an all-time high, because that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the all-time high for the portfolio. The way that you preserve capital to us is you have a balanced portfolio. You have a portfolio of stocks. You have a portfolio, and in that same portfolio, you have some bonds and you have some cash. So if one asset class, say stocks, is not having a particularly good day, usually that means that bonds are having a particularly good day. Or if stocks don't have a particularly good quarter, usually that means that bonds are having a, a, a good quarter. So one will offset the other in, in some respect, not dollar for dollar. But most folks that had big losses and that suffer big losses in market downturns don't have port, have portfolios that are too highly allocated to one asset class, whether it be stocks and what's getting ready to happen and what's what really started in 2013 for those investors that had high allocations to bonds, they thought that being an invested in bonds, if they got out, say, in the in the, uh, the the heights of the financial crisis in 08 and 09, and they went to their financial professional and said, I want out. I don't care what it, what it, where things are valued at, I don't care where the markets are, I don't care what the news is, I don't care what the Fed's doing, I just want out, and I want out now, and I want all my money in bonds. And they were, and they've probably felt fairly good through 2009 and 10 and 11 and 12 because interest rates were falling, and so they were seeing the value of their portfolio go up. Now, stocks went up a lot more than bonds, but then you get in 2013, and, you know, and, and suddenly, this preservation of capital goal of owning fixed income, because that's, what, that's how I'm going to preserve my portfolio. I'm never going to have to worry about this again, because my financial professional told me that if I own bonds, that I, I wasn't going to lose any value in my portfolio. Wrong. 2013 comes along, and these investors that had high allocations to, to fixed income found out that, yes, you can lose money in bonds. And, and one other thing I wanted to add to that, Jeff, you know, again, talking about a balanced account, I mean, David's, you know, 
you know, we're in our 25th year of business, and our philosophy from day one, and will continue to be the philosophy for 25 plus years to come, is that of being a balanced manager. And when we talk about being a balanced manager, we're not talking about going to a portfolio and saying, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Client, 60% of your money is in stocks, 40% of your money is in fixed income and cash, and we're going to set it and forget it. That is not what we're talking about, and we do not advocate that in any way, shape, or form, even for our listeners that are potentially managing their money on their own. When we talk about a balanced account, it's an actively managed balanced account to be able to make adjustments when adjustments need to be made, just like we do as professional money managers for our clients here at Davidson Capital Management. You know, there are certain market conditions where we want to be a little more overweighted in stocks than we are in fixed income, like we're like our current conditions right now in the interest rate environment where we have some of our highest allocations to stocks and our minimum allocations to bonds in the history of our firm right now. But then also when the winds and the tide shift and it's time to have more fixed income exposure because we're in a more normalized interest rate environment, then that's when you need to make your adjustments. It's not just about setting it and forgetting it in a balanced portfolio. You have to be actively managed in order to be successful over the long term. And if there's any, if there's one kind of statement that I use with prospective clients and our clients here at Davidson Capital Management that I'd like to convey to all of our listeners is that the way to build long-term wealth in a portfolio, it's not how well your portfolio does in up years, it's how shallow you can keep your hole in down years. And here's just a quick mathematical example. If you lose 50% of the value of your account, and I know we've run across some folks here that have come through our front door that have been in that situation, if you lose 50% of the value of your account, you have to make a 100% return just to get back to where you started. That's why keeping your hole shallow, being in an actively managed, balanced portfolio is what's going to help build long-term wealth in your account. And if you don't feel that you have the competency to do that, then you need to go out and search for a competent, registered investment advisor, someone that has discretionary control that can actively manage those assets for you to help protect your portfolio over the long term. So number two was preservation of capital. Uh, Number three of the five things every retirement portfolio should have is liquidity. And boy, I don't know how many times we have had this conversation with prospective clients uh, over the years here at our firm. And liquidity is something that I want each and every one of our listeners to think about, particularly those listeners that have traditional pension plans, And for listeners that are thinking about retiring in the short term, in the near term, and have been out doing their research of what financial professionals they possibly would want to be working with as they transition into retirement, who are shoving down your throats annuities. And any longtime listener of the Money Wise program knows our absolute disdain for annuities of any way, shape, or form. And also, in essence, when pension recipients decide, you know what, I want to start receiving those monthly payments from my pension, you have now turned those assets that you've worked your entire career to build in that pension into an annuity. But guess what these two these two things don't give you? They don't give you liquidity. And the, the pension topic is a topic I've wanted to have here on the Money Wise program for quite some time now. We always seem to be running out of time, and I know we're coming up to the bottom of the hour, so I'm going to say as much as I can before we go to the bottom of the hour break and come back. I'll continue my thought. But any listener of our program that 
that is lucky enough to have a traditional pension where it's growing and building value and it's going to be there when it comes time for you to retire. The one piece of advice that we have given our prospective clients through the years of service that we've provided is it's always the best idea to gain control of your assets at retirement, meaning not taking the annuity payments from a traditional pension. Because once you elect to take those pension payments, and let's just say in this example, you decide I'm going to be receiving $1,500 a month, that is what you're going to receive for the life of that payment schedule. Now, if you decide that you want to receive your pension in a single life payment, that's going to give you the biggest monthly payment. But guess what happens if you pass away the next year or six months after you make that decision? If you're married, your spouse receives nothing. And if you have children, your children receive nothing. And those assets that you worked your entire career to build goes right back into the pension is redistributed to other employees in the future. Um, That's if you choose the single life payout. Now, we're coming to the bottom of the hour break, so when we come back from the break, I want to go into the other payout options that retirees have in pensions and why you should be, if you have the ability to take a lump sum distribution from your pension, you need to be doing that in order to keep your liquidity. And we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the news. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing the five things that every retirement portfolio should have, number one was consistent income, number two was preservation of capital, and before we went to the bottom of the hour break, we were talking about liquidity, and I was taking a little sidebar discussing pensions, uh, traditional defined benefit plans that still quite a few listeners of the Money Wise program are lucky enough to receive or have the ability to receive pensions. Um, this really, this this whole discussion is really going out to you. And, and the the piece of advice that we give uh, prospective clients that come through our door is that if your pension allows you the ability to take a lump sum distribution from that pension, to take it because that then gives you the liquidity, but it also gives you full control of those assets that you possibly spent 25 to 40 plus years building and earning over your career. And so before we went to break, I was talking about the different pension payouts and some of the drawbacks of them. So we talked about the single life payout. You start receiving that payout, something happens to you, God forbid, six months later you pass away, nothing goes to your heirs or if you're married to your spouse. So that's not a very good benefit, but it gives you the highest monthly payout. Option number two is a survivorship benefit. So again, the payout's going to be less than option number one. And so if something were to happen to you, then it would go to your spouse. But here's something you need to think about under that option. God forbid something happened to both you and your spouse in a common incident, then guess what? Nothing goes to your heirs, and those monies are then redistributed to other employees that are part of that pension. Then a lot of times you have a third option. And there's multiple options, but I'm going to touch on the top three. 
Then option number three is you have a survivorship benefit, and then past that you have a beneficiary benefit. So if something were to happen to you and your spouse in a common accident or incident, then your beneficiaries would receive the remaining balance of your pension. But again, your monthly payout would be less. And you might be thinking, well, Kyle, those are three pretty good three options, three three pretty good options. Why wouldn't I go that direction? Well, here's something you also need to keep in mind with all three of these options. Once you elect to receive that pension, in this example, let's say it's $1,500, that is what you're going to be receiving for the rest of your life or for the rest of these payout elections that you've made. Well, there's something out there called monetary inflation that a lot of folks that feel this high level of comfort and security with receiving this monthly benefit check from their pension don't realize is that that $1,500 you're receiving a month, every month that goes by, that $1,500 buys a little bit less. Now, imagine receiving that payment for 20, 25, 30 years. I can assure you 30 years from now, $1,500 is going to be buying a heck of a lot less than it can today. And so someone who's a pension recipient who's thinking about annuitizing and taking that monthly payment needs to think about what we just discussed, but also monetary inflation eroding the purchasing power of that check because they're not adjusted for inflation. And you have to keep that in the forefront of your mind. That's why we always recommend to take the lump sum distribution, the cash option distribution, and put that money to work for you because it gives you the liquidity, it gives you the access, and it gives you the ability to pass those assets down to heirs. And what if you, let's say you take the election and you're 62 years old, 63 years old, and a couple of years you're getting the $1,500 a month, but something happens when you turn 65 and you need more than $1,500 a month. Yeah. Can't do anything. Can't do anything. Or how about this? How about the total opposite? How about if you have, usually when you re, when you retire from an organization, you might have a traditional 401K and a pension. A lot of the refineries here in Corpus Christi have two parts to their retirement. Well, let's just say you have enough in your 401K to live off of in retirement. You don't really need to touch the pension. Well, if you let's say you just let that pension money accumulate. And you didn't make, and you elected to just have it all rolled into one account. You you uh, put it to work. You for put it. you put it to work. You don't have to start taking distributions from even your four hundred one k or your pension retirement until you reach the age of seventy and a half under current law. So flexibility, and 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 that's not one of these one of the. Uh, it should be five, a slash. It should it be should, liquid, it should be liquidity, liquidity slash flexibility. That's right. And by committing yourself to a stream of payments, no one knows what's going to happen in their life 10 years from now, 20 years from now. A year from now. A year from now. I mean, six months from now. Life can change in the blink of an eye. So why tie your hands into something? Why, why, Why make a decision right now that could affect you a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road? You're just reducing your flexibility by committing yourself to to a taking a pension uh, payout in in the form of uh, payments which is in essence an annuity they don't ever call it that I know. which is very interesting it's not it, when you when we see the paperwork and we advise clients that come to our office it never says annuity it's just this is going to be your payment for your life, your life for your heir's life for your spouse's life it doesn't say 
that this is an essence and annuity, but that's exactly what it is. Well, and, and again, the technical definition of annuity is a steady stream of periodic payments. Well, guess what? We have clients at Davidson Capital Management that are taking monthly distributions from the assets we manage and, in essence, have created a quote-unquote annuity for themselves, by, but, but doing it by not owning an annuity and having full access to their money in case... Complete liquidity, complete, complete flexibility, flexibility, and complete access at all times. And the longest our clients would go without getting their hands on their assets in case, God forbid, an emergency is three business days. That's it. And so this pension conversation, again, goes right in line with annuities, and it really, again, adds to our disdain to annuities. And as Jeff said, you know, taking those, those monthly payments, you're handcuffing yourself. You're handcuffing yourself, and you're not giving yourself an out. And so we highly recommend before any decisions like this are made to pick up the phone and call us to at least receive an education on what your options are. Because I can tell you this, and I've run into this with a couple of our clients, Jeff, some companies that provide pension benefits do not advertise that there is a lump sum distribution option at all. They do not discuss it. I know one of our clients in right. Houston, we actually, he, our client had to make a phone call and put the hot coals to somebody on the other end of the phone before they finally admitted, yes, sir, you're correct, we do have a lump sum distribution option. But on all the paperwork that I assisted our client in filling out prior to his retirement, didn't say it anywhere. And it ought to be against the law for employers to, 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 to mislead Absolutely. their retirees that, that that option's not available to them. And the reason that they do it is they want to keep as much money in their pension plans as they can so that the 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 corporations that make co- corporate contributions into the into the employees pension plans by keeping more money in it they don't have to contribute as much as, right. as a corporation which improves their profitability that's right and so there's a incentive for less than full disclosure to occur when it comes time to retire that's right it's not very common but it does happen it does happen so Again, five things every portfolio retirement should have. Number one, consistent income. Number two, preservation of capital. Number three, liquidity. And you know, for we, Jeff, we, slash flexibility. Yeah, flexibility and, and kind of maybe reiterating what we had said in some of the, in some of the previous uh, uh, number one and number two about liquidity and, and the, the private place. Private placements are, the, are one of the biggest violators of of liquidity. Of liquidity. Yeah. Uh, we've especially private placements sold REITs. We've seen a lot of them sold in the financial since the financial crisis, and the rules have actually changed since we really started talking a lot about them. Uh, the, they're required to report, you know, the, the change in value of those private placement REITs, where in the past that they weren't really supposed to. If you have, if you're signing up for an investment, and it has a 200-page prospectus. You need to start asking some hard questions to the person on the other side of the table about how liquid this investment is. And if you can't get your money out of it in three business days or less, then you have to really question whether this is an investment that you should be in. A lot of these private placements and a lot of these private placement REITs especially 
you can't get out of them for up to three to six months after you put in a request. And actually, I've read on the front page of prospectuses for these private placement real estate investment trusts, or REITs, in bold letters now, granted, the, the print is about an eight point, so it's almost microscopic, but it's in bold. And it says that this is not an actively traded security, does not have an active open market for liquidity, and liquidity can be significantly and is significantly reduced. And, Jeff, I know you have personal experience with clients here at Davidson Capital Management where it took our client almost six months to receive benefits back from a private placement real estate investment trust that was purchased. So you, you've you been around the block a few times with these. In the 25 years we've managed money, we, have, we only invest in securities that are publicly traded that that have that you can look up online that have a symbol you can whether it's a mutual fund whether it's a stock whether it's an exchange traded fund whether it's a bond they're all publicly traded they're all highly liquid investments and w- we would not recommend to most investors unless you're very sophisticated and you have a, a portion of your portfolio that we would call your quote unquote play or Vegas money that you avoid investments that are not publicly traded okay so again when we're, we're getting ready to take our last commercial break for this weekend's money wise program when we come back we'll be wrapping up five things every retirement portfolio should have we've done consistent income preservation of capital capital liquidity slash flexibility and we've got number four and five coming up after this you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management we'll be back after the break Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906 0070 or toll free at 1 800 275 2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So in the last segment of this weekend's Money Wise program, I want to wrap up five things every retirement portfolio should have. So far, we've covered consistent income, number two, preservation of capital, number three, liquidity, and then Jeff has added slash flexibility. Number four is competitive costs. Now, we have talked, oh, my gosh, how many? I mean, we've, we're now in our ninth year of doing the Money Wise program here on 1360 KKTX, and we have talked about all the different ways people in the financial service industry are paid, from commissions to commissions paid on products that are sold. And at Davidson Capital Management, as a registered investment advisor, we are completely fee-based. Uh, and our max fee being 1% of total assets per year as far as our management fee is concerned, and our fee goes down from there based on assets under management. Um, and the one thing that we always recommend to anyone looking to hire an investment professional is to search out the registered investment advisor that is on a fee-based schedule, not a commission-based schedule, um, and really pay attention. I know from just looking at our competitors in the marketplace here in South Texas that at Davidson Capital Management, we're anywhere from 25 to 50% less expensive per year when it comes to our management expense. And so that's something that you'd always pay attention to and understand that when you're working with someone that is in a fee-based 
uh, structure, a fee-based arrangement that really puts them in the same side of the table or in the same boat as you because it gives them the, the incentive. The more money they make for you, the more money they make for themselves, and then if the value of the portfolio goes down, so does their management fee. So pay attention to competitive costs. Ask the questions. And and just really read the fine print. Don't be afraid to ask whatever whoever the financial professional is you you may be working with how much they're going to make for managing your money or selling you a particular product. There's that that's that shouldn't be a question that you should be afraid to ask. And and, and the person on the other side of the table should not him haul around or should not try to deflect the question away because. Cost and what you're paying in the portfolio in terms of management fees and expenses, and there's lots of other ways that fees get collected from investors that we didn't even go, we don't really have enough time to go through in this last segment of the show. They can add up, and they're not always obvious. And you have to, as Kyle says, dig deeper to figure it out. Uh, for folks that are involved with wrap accounts at the major brokerage houses and they go by different names depending on what brokerage house you're in many of those wrap accounts start off at two two and a half percent per year and go up from there That's right. uh, we've seen many wrap accounts that exceeded three percent of assets under management and don't even get a startus started about annuities. Well, I, I, and I will, I'll kind of leave this okay. number four segment with this. If anyone that you're working with is paid through commissions and you ask them how much commissions they're going to make and their answer is nothing, that's a flat-out lie. That is a flat-out lie. They're not people doing don't it work, out of the goodness of yeah, their people heart. People don't work for nothing. They don't work for nothing, so keep that in the back of your mind. So the fifth and final thing that every retirement portfolio should have, and again, see this and we talk about this time and time again, is long-term growth. The bottom line is, is as you get closer to retirement, and as Jeff said at the, the beginning of this second hour, you can't just board up your portfolio. You cannot say, well, I'm two or three years away from retiring, so now I'm just going to move everything 100% into fixed income. Now I'm safe. Yeah, preservation of capital should not overshadow long-term growth. You always need growth. Whether you're 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, you need some form of investment growth in your portfolio because that investment growth is what's going to help offset monetary inflation over the long term. That's why growth is so necessary and is a requirement for any successful portfolio. And I will say this. The last few 401ks that I've reviewed for prospective clients, I've been noticing just here recently a trend, especially with how well the markets did in 2013, where I've seen folks that are you know, in their mid to late 50s that are sitting 70, 80, 100% of their 401k in either cash, fixed income, or the stable value fund because they feel that, you know what, I've grown my 401k to four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars and I'm not willing to take any more risk, so I'm just gonna put it all in the stable value fund yeah. and ride off into the sunset and that is the worst thing you could do. They're allowing preservation of capital to overshadow long term growth. And and we've always said don't be confused with pre preservation of capital with return of purchasing power. The the lack of thought towards monetary inflation is is a bad thing that you that you could do for your portfolio not paying attention to that 
not realizing that loss of purchasing power is a loss. Well, it's not going to show it on your statement, but it is a loss. One thing that, that I think we could safely say as financial advisors is that these days of the CPI running around 2% are just about over. Yeah. And we have no way of knowing how high inflation is going to be in the future, but it's definitely not going to be at this level. Another reason to not say, oh, $700,000 is enough, and I'm just going to, as you say, Play ride it into safe. the sun. I mean, that the funny thing is you think you're playing it safe. You are actually taking a big risk. You think you're being safe when you're doing this. You are not. And you could be doing long-term irreparable damage to your retirement portfolio. And so if you find yourself in that position and you might be past the age of 59 and a half, one thing I just kind of quick sidebar to throw into this, if you're participating in a 401k and you're past the age of 59 and a half, most standard prototype 401k plans allow you to take what's called an in-service distribution. And that allows you to roll out the balance of your 401k, hire a professional money manager like a Davidson Capital Management to manage those assets for you while you are still working for your current employer and also allowing you to continue to participate in the 401k to receive any of the matching or profit sharing dollars that your employer is providing. And we have done this, we have done this with a multitude of clients over the years, but again, it is something that is not advertised by the 401k provider that you have the ability to do this. So if you're in this past 59 and a half years old, you're not planning on retiring anytime soon, you know, it never hurts to pick up the phone and make a call and to learn about what your options are with your 401k because if you've amassed four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars or more in your 401k and you're nervous about the future and you don't have the wherewithal to manage it yourself, there could be some options out there for you to hire a professional manager to oversee those assets. So long-term growth is an absolute key. Do not board up your portfolio. You'll need growth in that portfolio for the rest of your life. So with that, we would like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. Again, if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906 906- zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two for my father john and my brother jeff this is kyle davidson saying have a fantastic weekend and to your financial health we will talk to you next week